Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing The Fog from 1980, directed by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, starring Adrian Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Atkins, and Janet Lee. In this film, strange things start to happen as a mysterious fog rolls into the coastal town of Antonio Bay exactly 100 years after its founding. If you're new to the show, we are going to discuss some spoiler-free background info on this movie for the first 15 or 20 minutes here, and after that we're going to play a little transition music before we go into spoiler mode and walk through the plot in detail and then review the film. So, if you haven't seen it yet, you can hang out with us until that transition music plays and then go watch it on Amazon Prime or rent it from the internet places before you uh, listen to that spoiler stuff. And this was a request by Sticky Heat on our Discord server a while back. So thanks, Sticky Heat. And uh, this was one I just I knew we'd get to eventually, and, and here we are. Yeah, it seems like it's a classic when you think about like the films that came out in the 80s. It's up there, right? I think so, low-key. I mean, Carpenter fans for sure, and 80s horror fans, yes. Yeah, I find that this has been the year of catching up on some things that we knew we'd cover and just like hadn't gotten a chance to yet. And sure, it's been a little bit of a slow release year. Uh, yeah, which is it's nice to have time to go back. And, it is and a little bit nice. It always yeah. blows up around the fall. So here, right. here we come. In August, we've got two, and then I'm sure after that, it'll just keep on trucking. Yeah, that reminds me. I, I feel like in our uh, episodes in the last few years, you always talk about the holes you want to fill, and I, I always enjoyed hearing you use that term. It's been a while since we've talked about those holes. <laughs> yeah, you want me to talk more about it? <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've filled quite a few of my holes. Listeners might disagree, but even not just through the show, you know, doing my homework on the back end, I've, I'm catching up. Yeah, yeah, you're getting a lot of holes filled on the front and back ends for sure. <laughs> oh man, I walked right into that <laughs> that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so John Carpenter, always talking about the holes we have to fill. I keep thinking, boy, we got to cover more of his stuff. But you know, we really kind of have covered a decent amount of it. We covered Christine, They Live, The Thing, Halloween One and Two, The Fog is what we're doing now, <laughs> and uh, I guess that's it. But yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah, he didn't do Halloween 3? No, he didn't. He scored it and I believe was a producer on it, but he did not ah, do it. right. Okay. I wonder, do you, do you think he's our most covered director on this podcast? I think Rob Zombie might have that title. Oh, weirdly. shit, still? Okay. I think. I'm not sure. I'd have to do the math on that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, his, uh, his feature debut, feature-length debut, was 1974's Dark Star, which was written by Dan O'Bannon, who's been coming up a lot lately with our Life Force episode. Then he did Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, and then Halloween was his big breakthrough in 1978. And here he is two years later with The Fog. A year after that came Escape from New York. Then a year after that, Halloween 2 and The Thing. And then he goes on to do things like Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, which a lot of people want us to get to. Uh, they Live, In the Mouth of Madness has been requested a couple times as well. And then the last film he directed was The Ward in 2010. Mm, cool. Yeah, pretty prolific. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, he often gets mentioned in the, uh, you know, he's considered one of the masters of horror. I think plenty of people of a certain age 
will name him as their favorite horror director. Do you think you have... I feel like it's a... Some people would have an answer right away to this question, but I think it can kind of be a put-on-the-spot question if you haven't thought about it. But do you think you have a favorite horror director? Uh, I, I do. Like, I do have, like, a modern one, uh, which would probably be, like, Jordan Peele. Um, but, like, I don't know. Like, it's hard to compare, like, a modern director like that to someone like... I, I think if he gets, like, one of the classics, I feel like Carpenter's probably my top one. Uh, what about you? Yeah, it's hard with the mo- the modern ones because it's like, well, he's only done three movies, but they've all been really good. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I might have to put Jordan Peele up there as well. Um, then there's people like Mike Flanagan who are modern and very prolific yeah. that have done some stinkers, <laughs> but have also <laughs> done some really fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I think someone like Flanagan, uh, he's been around for like 10, or like, I don't know, 10, 15 years now, right? And so, like, yeah, they, they have, like, I think when a, when a director like that comes on the stage, or, like, James Wan, like, they come on, like, they're changing the game, they're awesome, but then, like, as time goes on, maybe it doesn't hold up as well, or they lose their edge. So, I when I say peel, I feel like it's probably a very short-lived uh, uh, appeal there. Oh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. We'll see. Yeah. Um, Is Carpenter in your list, or do you have a top director? I think Cronenberg might be my, my fave, just for, like, the consistent ability to wow me in some way even if it's sure. like one or two wows in a movie i'm so so on he's always creative always yeah, a weird yeah. weird idea <laughs> a wacky movie yeah always entertaining yeah he's one of those directors like you see his film and you know it's like a cronenberg film he's like got a trademark style i'm not sure if carpenter necessarily has that i think carpenter does i okay. think it's just a bit more of a it doesn't have quite as much pop as like a Cronenberg style. It's, but it's, it's he's got a vibe. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, I I love that he's a musician too, and he like scores a lot of these movies. Uh, it's interesting though when he, when you talk about his films. Uh, I think like his his biggest period of success was Halloween to the thing, right? Isn't the thing kind of where like he gets into some trouble and his career goes in a different direction because it wasn't well received. Yeah, I mean, commercially, he his career gets in, into some trouble for sure. Critically, I mean, people love the thing. You know, at least people nowadays, it's considered a classic, and we are hated for just thinking it's pretty good instead of amazing. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and then after that, he certainly makes some cult classics after that. Christine, Prince of Darkness, Mouth of Madness, They Live. But, but yeah, yeah. I, I that's why I have trouble thinking of him with as much like the more I watch of him I'm like okay I get the reveredness um but for me personally Halloween is the only film of his where I'm like wow oh yeah and you know the thing I'm in awe of special effects but a movie as a whole I just think it's good and there really aren't many more movies of his that I think are great just Hmm. good even Halloween 2 you didn't think was great no I don't think it's great Oh, okay. I think it's yeah, good. Yeah. I like it a lot. I, I don't think there's a Carpenter movie I've seen and didn't like. Yep. But it's just like the wow factor isn't there for me. Yeah, yeah. His movies, uh, and you know, we, t- we talk about The Thing uh, having a cult following. I, I think both The Thing and this one, uh, they didn't have like amazing reviews when they were released, right? It was kind of like over time people have gone back to appreciate him. And, and that's what I think his style is. It's, it's never like you watch one of his films and come out being like, wow, but there's like a subtlety to it 
that I think attracts like repeated viewings maybe and it's more of a grower than, than a shower potentially. I think that that's very true and I think this movie especially illustrates that. There's a certain watchability and rewatchability, like a certain ease and space to, to a lot of his movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it, I, I like that about him, like that, like it's not a movie that's going to hit you right away, but it does kind of like stick in your head for a bit and you can go back and like find new things potentially or yeah, it has that space and openness. I feel like there, there's more like atmosphere usually uh, versus like hard, like fast plot, which some other directors do. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you think about this time period too, in the eighties, when you, you, you got your VHSs and you pop in the same ones over and over again and wear the hell out of them, his movies... I can see playing well in that era, you know, not an era yeah. where you've got all the options in the world on streaming, and if a movie doesn't make a big impression on you, you you kind of forget it, yeah, or, or you yeah. say, "Wow, that was great," and never really watch it again. But right, yeah, that's crazy how the medium has such a big uh, impact on on something like that. Yeah, I mean, you could argue it doesn't, but uh, I gotta believe maybe it does. At least when you're a kid and you're restricted and you yeah. don't have access to just like go. <laughs> rent every tape in the world, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Damn, that kind of sucks for modern-day directors. Like, uh, yeah, if a Carpenter kind of person came out today and it was more atmospheric. But then, I don't know, you, do you have, like, A24 with, like, similar vibes of, like, not very, like, plot-forward and more, like, uh, just ambiance? And they seem to be doing good. So I, I don't know. Yeah, but they're they're targeting those, those the adults that, yeah, that those were those VHS. Yeah. Yeah. Like... I don't. I think Carpenter, you can see appealing to kids in the '80s, or like you know, mm-hmm. eight to sixteen. You know, where you're like, oh, my buddy's got this like movie. Let's watch it. Yeah. I don't see a twenty-four slow burns appealing to the eight to sixteen demographic very mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. There, you you know, things like X very much yeah. would, but sure, sure. not uh, not <laughs> the mod or what was that. The movie I, we can never think of the name of Saint Saint Maud. Saint Maud, yeah, yeah, like Gretel. Uh, was it Hansel and Gretel or just Gretel? Gretel and Han- Hansel. That's what it was called. Yeah, <laughs> it just flipped the title. I flipped the names. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, I think you're right. Like that that v- without the VHS or DVD markets and everything streaming, uh, directors like this don't have too much chance with the younger generations. Yeah, I mean it's a it's an interesting uh, thought experiment. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe people's opinions differ on that, and they just think we're talking BS right now. So I'll get more into some facts. Uh, okay. <laughs> Star of this facts. movie is uh, arguably Adrian Barbeau, who plays Stevie Wayne, and she was married to Carpenter from 1979 to 1984. She was also in Escape from New York, and her voice appeared in The Thing. Uh, this was her first appearance in a theatrical film after her success in theater which included a Tony nomination for her role as Rizzo in the musical Grease. I could totally oh. see her as Rizzo. Yeah, yeah, that casting seems right. Yeah, and then she went on to appear in a few films by some of these masters of horror. She was in Swamp Thing from Wes Craven and Creep Show from George Romero. And one thing I did not realize about her until researching this film, she voiced Catwoman in Batman the Animated Series from the 90s. Oh, cool, Wow. Pretty nice. cool. Yeah. I can picture that. Yeah. I mean, the Stevie Wayne radio DJ character has, you know, kind of the sultry, seductive voice. Yeah. And that was <laughs> kind of Catwoman's vibe in that that series. Yeah, totally. Um, Carpenter worked with 
people. (laughs) (laughs) He sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, cold hard facts. Yeah. (laughs) He kind of had, you know, some of these recurring actors or people he worked with repeatedly. So on that note, this is his second time working with Jamie Lee Curtis after Halloween. And there's a lot of actors who you might recognize from Halloween. So Nancy Loomis, who played... Annie Brackett is in this, in The Fog. Charles Cyphers, who played her father, Sheriff Brackett, is in this. And there's also, like, a lot of shuffling around of names in his characters. Oh, yeah. Like, Tom Atkins' character in The Fog is named Nick Castle, after the actor who portrayed Michael Myers in Halloween. Right. Charles Cyphers' character is named Dan O'Bannon, after the screenwriter who worked with Carpenter on Dark Star. Mm-hmm. There's a character in The Fog named Tommy Wallace, which is also the name of the editor and production designer for both The Fog and Halloween. And he would go on to direct Halloween 3. That's who directed Halloween 3. So it gets kind of downright confusing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and Nancy Loomis, by the way, is the reason there is Dr. Loomis in the original Halloween, I presume. Oh, yeah, right, right. I, I like how he does that. It's kind of like he doesn't want to waste time like coming up with new names. He's got like... <laughs> yeah, he's like, hey, names. you, what's your name? All right. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm not going to overthink this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, do you, what do you think? Uh, do you like feel the pressure he has going into this film because he's just had like this huge success of Halloween and like trying to do that follow up? Like, uh, do, do you feel like, where, where do you feel like his, his mental space is right now? Yeah, I got to believe there's some pressure. And, um, you know, on that note, I don't know if the pressure had anything to do with it, but after the film was done shooting, he kind of sat down and looked at the initial cut and was not happy with it, and massive reshoots were undertaken to add scenes. And in the end, about a third of the theatrical release of this film, and what you watch if you rent it now, is reshoots. Oh, yeah. So a pretty big overhaul. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. But yeah, got to be some pressure there. And and on a similar note, I think part of the reason he cast Jamie Lee Curtis, I, I read that he wrote this part in for her kind of later because she didn't have as much, as many on. job o- offers as they thought she would after the success yeah. of Halloween. Yeah, yeah. It sounded like he hired her like, uh, yeah, out of like pity or something. Yeah. A weird career trajectory. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, I think, went on to have a really good career, but yeah, just weird, the Halloween echo effect, weird trajectory for Carpenter, who kind of, so many people think of him as a classic horror director, but from his perspective, he was kind of like washed up after the thing. Mm, so Yeah, right. It, it was just like he, he was going to have these big budget movies, he was going to be a big director, and it just like didn't really didn't work out. Way. Yeah, 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 right. Um, and, and the budget for this one was so much more than Halloween too. So I'm sure that was like a big, uh, added layer of pressure on him. Yeah. Budget of 1.1 million, which still is pretty small, but a little bit bigger back then and, and bigger than Halloween box office though of 21.3 million. So it still did well. It was really the thing that I think kind of, I don't want to say tanked his career, but it just like. He was kind of on the upward path, and that kind of flattened him out. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rotten Tomatoes critics score of 75%. User score 64%. Even Big Carpenter fans, I think they like The Fog, but it's not necessarily one of his most iconic or beloved. Yeah, yeah. This is my impression. Uh, 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, I never hear it mentioned too often. I mean, there, w- there was a remake, though, right? There like was two- a remake in 2005 that was rated PG-13 to be targeted towards a teen horror audience, which really mm-hmm. you could have rated this PG-13. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that was one thing that I was always surprised about is I, I think, as you talked about, they went back and they did a lot of editing and reshoots and they tried to make it gorier, but uh, it still doesn't feel like that gory of a film, does it? No, it's really not very gory. Um and neither was that remake, but that actually made decent money, um, even though it was panned by critics. It sits at 4% on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> with a 19% audience score, which is wow. also pretty yeah. low for the audience. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. Um, Deborah Hill co-wrote this film with him, as she did for Halloween, Escape from New York, Halloween 2, and Escape from L.A., she also produced many of his films in addition to other classic films like The Dead Zone, Clue, Adventures in Babysitting. Did you ever see Adventures in Babysitting? That was a big one for us when we were kids. No, I missed it. Not a horror film though, right? No, just like a family adventure movie with starring Elizabeth Shue as the babysitter. Oh, cool. uh, Kind of they end up on this crazy night in downtown Chicago. Oh, nice. So it's a good movie. You should, you should watch it as a Chicagoan. Yeah, yeah. I love uh, 80s movies in Chicago. There was nice. Same, same. Uh, Deborah Hill, I, I, I feel like, we, yeah, we come across her name all the time on these John Carpenter films, but like, I feel like I know so little about her. And she like co-wrote most of the movies with him and produced a bunch of stuff. Do you, do you know more about her? Like, uh, I, I just feel like she's had like such a big legacy and is like, really talked about. Yeah, I mean, I think she's just really respected and was a bit of a pioneer as a female movie producer and writer. And I think especially now for women and men kind of looking back on 80s horror being like, oh, damn, like Deborah Hill's a producer on a lot of these movies and it's a big deal. And she talks about how her, you know, career both just through the times and as she got more experience went from being called honey to, you know, being called ma'am and yes, ma'am and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I... I would like to learn more about her. I'm sure there are reams written on her. I bet there's big pieces these days of people kind of retroactively going back and taking stock of her career. Yeah, seems like a fascinating person. I'd love to know like how she and Carpenter even got together in the first place. I was assumed there might have been a romantic connection, but there was. She was his one-time girlfriend. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, but I mean, he speaks really highly of her. He's mentioned how much she helps with the dialogue, especially among the female characters and stuff so yeah yeah I, nice. I he's i think he's always given her a lot of respect and and credit great yeah um yeah what else you've mentioned the music he scored 13 of his 19 feature length films if i'm doing that math right mm-hmm. um special effects makeup was done by rob botine uh, a name from the thing and the howling and he's an Academy Award winning artist. He got like a special achievement Oscar. So he was responsible for the special effects on this movie, which is another shame that they they could have really hammered those home more. Yeah, yeah, they could have. But I, I don't know. That, I feel like that would have changed uh, the tone of the film a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. Sure. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about Did you say he's that. also the guy who worked on uh, The Thing? Yeah, correct. Oh, wow. Okay, that's wild. Yeah, man. Yeah, he's a... Uh, and people, you know, as far as werewolf transformations go, American Werewolf in London is kind of the uh, the number one star. 
But yeah. the Howling's transformation is pretty rad, too. That's a, a second place for sure. And that's also this guy? That's Rob Bottin, yeah. Okay, cool. Speaking of recurring uh, behind-the-scenes people, Dean Cundy shot this, uh, an Oscar-nominated director of photography who shot many of Carpenter's films, including Halloween, and many other classics like Back to the Future, Parts 1 through 3, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which got him an Oscar nomination, Hook, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13, etc., uh, and me Pretty and my wife's uh, favorite guilty pleasure a Christmas movie, The Holiday, oh. with Cameron Diaz <laughs> and Jack Black. You yeah, haven't seen that one. <laughs> oh, man. It's really <laughs> hokey, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, he's, he's worked on some huge films. Um, and he shot this in a different aspect ratio, right? Yeah, once people start talking about aspect ratios, I kind of tune out. I don't really, <laughs> really care or understand how that translates. Yeah, yeah. You got you got thoughts? Uh, no, just that. Um, I, I mean, usually I feel like it, it's, it jumps out. Uh, it didn't necessarily jump out to me on this film, but like, uh, yeah, I was, I was just reading about it, like uh, that, that was a decision Carpenter made or something to make the movie more uh, feel like less low budget. But I'm, I'm not sure if I noticed. I mean, it definitely it didn't feel low budget, but I couldn't tell if it was a different aspect ratio. Could you? That didn't jump out at me. Yeah, I mean, sometimes my most intelligent observations of aspect ratios is like, oh. This one fills my whole TV now. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. this one doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or in, this has the black lines on it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or uh, this is a box. If you're yeah. Robert Eggers. <laughs> yeah. Right. The lighthouse. Anything else? Background info on this movie you want to touch on before we keep rolling? Uh, no. I think you hit everything uh, that I had. Okay. Well, let's hit the Ohio connection, which, as always, comes from our friend Alex, who connects. Every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns a jukebox bar and restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you're in the area, you got to check out Jukebox. Great patio, great beer, great drinks, uh, great food. So Alex says The Fog is a supernatural horror film directed by John Carpenter. It tells the story of a strange glowing fog that sweeps over a small coastal town, bringing with it the vengeful ghosts of mariners who were killed in a shipwreck a century before. The film was edited and directed by and screened... Wait, oh, there's a typo here, sorry. The film was edited by director and screenwriter Tommy Lee Wallace. He is best known for his work directing films such as Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Fright Night Part 2, and the 1990 television miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's horror novel It. He also edited both the original Halloween films. Wallace was briefly married to the Fog actress Nancy Loomis, who played Sandy Fidel, and rose to prominence as Annie Brackett in the Halloween films. Tommy Lee Wallace graduated with a BFA in design from Ohio University, located in Athens, Ohio. Nice. Lots of romances woven between these people. Yeah, yeah, a lot going on behind the scenes there. Yeah. Um, Nancy Loomis, uh, that's the actress's name. Uh, She's only in Halloween 1, right? She doesn't come back after that. No, she does not. Okay. (laughs) That would be a whole different type of movie. (laughs) Right, right, okay. Uh, yeah, she, she's done some other horror work too, right? Outside of these two films? She was in Assault on Precinct 13. Okay. Uh, by John Carpenter. Yep. And I f- want to say she might have like a cameo in a later Halloween movie, but I might be wrong about that. Okay. Um, yeah, I feel like we've talked about her in, in some other film or maybe just something in another reference or something. I mean, but... yeah. And then there's Billy Loomis from Scream, so. Oh, yeah. Maybe right. you're thinking Damn. of him. There's lots, lots of Loomises. 
I know all because of what, wow. She's a, uh, yeah, she's inspiring. I think she's the OG Loomis. Yeah. That's incredible. She's the source. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. All right, man. Were you ready to, uh, walk through the plot and everything? Yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. Let's do it. But, uh, it, you know, it's quite a coincidence. This is actually my neighborhood's 100 year anniversary tonight. And, uh, Actually, this is even more of a coincidence. I'm starting to see a mysterious fog coming down the street, so I might need to check that out. Can you just hold on one second? Oh, sure. Yeah, better check that out. All right, be right back. All right. Hey, man, I'm back. Everything's okay. Oh, okay. Uh, fog coming in was totally normal. Yeah, well, I forgot the centennial celebration is actually a rave party, so <laughs> it's just a fog machine, and the glow was just a bunch of glow sticks that everybody's oh, waving nice. around. Not sure why <laughs> they went Molly? with the rave theme, but yeah, yeah I think they're all on Molly out there. Oh, okay, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, can't, can't be alarmed when uh, people are throwing those 100-year parties. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, the neighborhood centennials are real big on Molly. <laughs> exactly. Let's get pretty wild. <laughs> Holy shit, man. It is so hot in my podcasting closet. <laughs> it's a 100-degree day today, and it is... this. The air conditioning did not get into this closet. But here we go. You're, uh, you're, you're in the basement, right? Yeah, which is normally very cool, but this closet yeah. tonight is... Wow, so... Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit of that up here. I'm on the third floor closet, though. Uh, yeah. If uh, things start to get weird during this plot walkthrough, it's because I'm getting <laughs> getting heat stroke. Getting sweated out. So uh, the film begins with a quote on the screen from Edgar Allan Poe that reads, Is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? And I don't know if I have any idea what to make of that, even having <laughs> seen the film. Do you, Ashwin? <laughs> no, uh, I, I think it might fit in with like the overall theme uh, later on. But uh, yeah, I, I hate when people have quotes about dreams. So I don't. I I just don't want to quote at the beginning of any movie. I, I think it's so <laughs> it's cheesy. It's just kind of lame. Yeah. Do you uh, do you if like I mean a lot of movies start out with like uh, standard things like uh, pretext around like uh, oh that what were you gonna see is like true events or um, y- Star Wars starts out with like some background uh, storytelling this one starts with a quote do you, are, do you hate like all text before a movie or I, just quotes I think I do actually now that I think about it I I unless it's examples. like <laughs> unless it's like something simple like three days ago. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> but like, it's got like three words or less. Yeah, right. <laughs> Keep it tight. I'm, yeah, I, I just don't. I think most of the time, it's just kind of lazy or bad writing or unnecessary, or you could find a better way to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I never like read something and think, "Wow, that added to the film," or like that really made the film. Yeah, for sure. Connect. Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe like Blair Witch Project is the only one I'll say. Okay, that one. That one added. Sure, sure. After the quote, we open with an old man around a campfire telling a ghost story to some children about their coastal town that they live in, Antonio Bay. He tells a story about an old clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane that approached the coast 100 years ago following the light of a campfire which it mistook for a lighthouse. As the ship approached the coast, a fog rolled in and it crashed and sank. And the story goes that when the fog returns someday, so too will the drowned crew of the Elizabeth Dane 
searching for the campfire that doomed them at 12 o'clock midnight on that night in April 100 years ago. And we're then introduced to the town of Antonio Bay with some cross-cutting around town, accompanied by the voice of radio DJ Stevie Wayne, played by Adrian Barbeau. And we see various strange things happening about town on this night. A priest finds an old journal dated 1880 when a brick falls out of his church's wall, revealing the hidden diary. An earthquake shakes the shelves of a convenience store. Car alarms all go off at once. A chair moves by itself in someone's home. And as Nick Castle, played by Tom Atkins, picks up a hitchhiker named Elizabeth, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, all the windows of his vehicle mysteriously shatter at once. All the while, Stevie Wayne explains over the radio that this is Antonio Bay's 100th birthday. What did you think of this initial bit, getting a feel from the t- for the town, hearing the ghost story? Uh, the ghost story I didn't care for it too much. That that like didn't do much for me. Which I I guess it comes into it like sets the context for like what's gonna happen later. So I, I can see why they went back and added that in. Um, but I I liked like the space we had to just kind of explore the town, get to know the characters. I love movies where you have like a strong uh, DJ presence. I think like Pontypool might have done that. Maybe a few other films we've seen just have like a voice on the radio that kind of carries you through the film. So I, I, I like that character set up there. Um, but yeah, this was all very slow and felt like very just setting the scene and then like some kind of like random things happen. So cool way to like introduce the town. Uh, I thought very atmospheric. Had like the Carpenter vibes with like car lights flashing and uh, that feel of like nighttime like emptiness. Uh, that kind of sucks you into uh, yeah the setting of this film. So I, I, I it was slow, but it, it felt uh, it felt good to me. How, how about you? Yeah, both this centennial celebration and my neighborhood centennial celebration both featured prominently a DJ. <laughs> yeah, there you D- go. Different kind of DJ. <laughs> Every yeah, exactly. That's critical to any centennial. Um, yeah, man, I, I'd agree with everything you said. The campfire story, I was fine with it. Better that than a. A whole bunch of text on screen that says 100 <laughs> years ago. See, um, are you sure about that? I feel like that, that that could have been written out as a text, and that might have been more effective than like an old guy telling kids the story. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd rather see the old guy telling the kid the story, I think. Okay. And one okay. of the kids was Stevie's son, so it wasn't just like totally unrelated to anything. Sure. Okay. I think that the town here of Antonio Bay is like a character in the story a little bit, so... Cross-cutting around town feels like a good way to get us introduced to this movie. There's a good small-town atmosphere going, and yeah. The Carpenter vibe I was talking about before is very present here. I think the Carpenter vibe is not very far from a from a Dean Cundy vibe, especially like mm. at this phase of Cundy's career when he's working so often with Carpenter. Like, It's hard to separate one from the other or... or I don't know, maybe it's always hard to tell who's the bigger influence there or if it's yeah. just total teamwork, but sure. That yeah, it's got a very carpenter feel. Lots of like moonlit type shots and uh, just a very specific type of like framing and spaciousness to the shots and like the composition. Right. It it feels like a spacious movie in some ways. Yeah, yeah, spacious, atmospheric. I, maybe that's a signature thing of uh, Carpenter that um, he nails well. Is like yeah, that that open space, like very slow and like slow paced, uh, kind of feel that gives like the setting room to breathe. Yeah, yeah, and that's sometimes why I'm not wowed by some of his movies. It's just like huh, we're just kind of settling in, and 
Halloween yeah. is very not like that to me. It's like a model of efficiency. And mm-hmm. part of me is like, that's why I love Halloween the most out of all his movies. Sure. Because he still takes yeah. keeps that atmosphere, but... It's a little more driven. It's tight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen it. I want to go back and, and see that again. But yeah, yeah, it, that seems like on a whole different level compared to some of these films. For sure. Uh, we receive a more formal introduction to Stevie Wayne with a scene of her inside the lighthouse on Spivey Point where she owns and operates her own radio station. She gets a call from Dan, the weatherman, who warns her that there is a fog coming in and she should warn any ships at sea via her radio broadcast. Stevie does so, and we cut to the crew of a boat named Seagrass, who soon becomes enveloped in the mysterious fog, uh, but not before they talk about how hot Stevie Wayne sounds. <laughs> yeah. um, they are baffled when their generator dies and all of their gauges shatter, and then up on deck they see a large wooden ship right next to them that looks like it came from the previous century. And soon, ghostly figures emerge from the fog and impale them with various weapons that one would have aboard a ship in the 1800s. What did you think of this first real scene of horror? Uh, it was it was interesting because, yeah, you, you don't really see much of the attackers, uh, which I think is a theme throughout this whole film, uh, and it sounds like a decision was made there. Uh, so, yeah, it, it didn't really, like, uh, jump out or anything. And then I feel like the editing in, like, the action, like, where people were, what room, or, like, what area of the boat they were on wasn't quite clear. I feel like the cuts weren't uh, done very well. So I, th- I think the editing kind of killed the momentum of, like, what could have been a strong attack scene and then also not seeing the monster and, uh, and, and the violence happening uh, made it tough to follow. But what, what did you think? Yeah, man, like editing and shot selection are so important in giving the viewer a sense of space and cohesion and just feeling like they even know what's going on in a movie. Yeah. And just you can feel very disoriented when that that's lacking. So, yeah. Did you feel like that was missing here? I didn't feel that. But you saying that I'm like, yeah, you're you're right. I, I think that that's a very valid criticism. Hmm. I think it really you think could it? have been approved. Yeah, I, th- I think it was cool. It's kind of like the rest of the movie. It's very moody and atmospheric, and the framing and lighting during the scene is really cool. Mm-hmm. But it, it lacks a certain pop. Um, for the first kill, that would be okay. Um, but as we'll see, it kind of is the MO for the rest of the movie, too. Yeah, you think uh, you think the first kills? Because I think uh, the first kill always kind of like... Uh, is is the one that's supposed to pop in a in a film like your opening kill because it like yeah brings you into the film or gets you excited and then like a film can slow down or like future ones can like take their time a little bit more but isn't that first kill supposed to be a little bit more interesting? Yeah, I mean you could argue that yeah it should be, but I I think a lot of times it does just like set the tone and the mood for the rest of the movie. Sure, sure, yep, yeah I think this one totally does. Yeah. Um, so we cut back to our boy Nick Castle and the hitchhiker he picked up, which he is now in bed with because that's just what Tom Atkins does in 80s horror movies. <laughs> How? How does he do that? <laughs> oh, man. So many guys on our Discord server are, are obsessed with him. Really? That guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's my reaction, too. I like Tom Atkins just fine, but people yeah. love Tom Atkins. Have you what what else is he in that that like he's famous? Well, he's in Halloween Halloween three, right? He's in Halloween three. He's in Creep Show. He's in Night of the Creeps. Um, mm. He's in a couple more Carpenter films. Okay, 
Yeah. 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 Not, not someone I recognize right away, but uh, yeah, I guess he must have an appeal. Sheriff in Bloody Valentine 2009, uh, an older, older Tom Atkins. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so they have just made love together and they're now in his house and they notice the fog enveloping Nick's house. We see a ghostly figure rapping on his door with a giant hook. But when Nick goes to answer the door, the clock strikes 1 a.m. and the fog dissipates. And Stevie Wayne's voiceover lets us know on the radio that the witching hour is over. The next day, the town is concerned that the seagrass is still missing. That's the name of that boat. Um, Especially Nick is very concerned as he is close with one of the crew and finds it very suspicious that the boat would not be back yet. He and Elizabeth go on a search for the boat And upon finding it, they discover that the crew has been killed and everything in the boat has been destroyed by water, even though it doesn't seem like any water got into the boat. The situation becomes even more baffling when an autopsy reveals that Nick's friend drowned, even though they found him inside the boat and the boat was above water. The coroner says he has the appearance of being underwater for days, even though it was only one night. Speaking of Carpenter struggling to come up with names, he gives the hitchhiker the name of the boat from 100 years ago. There was the Elizabeth Dane, and Jamie Lee Curtis is named Elizabeth. Oh. <laughs> Part of me was like, is there some sort of parallel? Like, Elizabeth is not oh. from around there. She's coming into town just for this night. Yeah. Just for the centennial. She, is she kind of paralleling with the boat that's just here for the night? Interesting. Um, yeah. Or did he just, you know, have a struggle with names and just took anything he saw? I was like, <laughs> okay, that's your name. That's that's the only name I could come up with. Yeah, <laughs> really getting some mileage out of that name he came up with there. Uh, yeah, that, that's an interesting parallel. I, yeah, I, I doubt uh, that was purposeful, right? Like, uh, what, what do you think? Do you, do you think there's a metaphor there? I don't know, man. I, it seems so weird to use that name twice and not yeah. have a theme or a yep. metaphor. But yeah, <laughs> with his struggle for naming ideas, maybe it is just coincidence. I know I'm starting a little worried about him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dude, the the relationship, like how she's like tagging along, and the whole relationship between her and uh, the main guy, uh, d- that comes out of nowhere, right? It's a little hard to buy. They're just like instant, like together, and she's just a hitchhiker that came through for, a, you know, a night, and now she's Fell in love. It. Yeah, and just following him around on this goose chase. But I mean, she was a character kind of written into the story after the fact, so yeah. That makes sense. By the way, we one thing I missed that I did want to mention in the background info, Janet Lee is in this movie of psycho fame. She is Janet Lee from the shower scene. And that is JLC's mom. She's the daughter of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. So mother yep. and daughter are in this movie together. That's awesome. What role does uh, Janet Lee play? She's the mayor. Oh, no way. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Um. So yeah, while the coroner and... The coroner and Nick are outside the autopsy room discussing this whole thing where, hey, it looks like the stew was underwater for days or weeks. Uh, the body comes back to life and is in the, the room alone with Elizabeth and attempts to kill her with a scalpel before collapsing onto the floor. She screams in terror but is unharmed. Uh, and then, you know, Nick and the coroner rush into the room and none of them know what to make of this nor do they know what to make of the number three that the corpse seems to have carved into the floor with the scalpel that it was wielding. Oh, I didn't notice the number three. 
Dude, There's number three there? Dude, I did not notice that either. And then huh. I read it in the Wikipedia plot, and I was like, seriously, what? <laughs> and went back and rewatched, and sure enough, there is a, a quick shot of a number three on the floor. Interesting. I must have like looked down to take a note. Yeah. Uh, does that make sense in the film later? It does, yeah. We'll get to that soon. Okay. Uh, so... At this point in the film, we've been doing a lot of cross-cutting in this movie, and I actually saw a, a critic um, kind of ding the movie for all the cross-cutting, but that is a big part of the movie. We're constantly cross-cutting between all these different characters. There are so many characters. Yeah. So, And it's a movie about a town uh, and the town's history, so to me it kind of makes sense. Normally I wouldn't be so keen on that, but it makes sense because you know we're getting a feel for the town. and different locations, different characters, different roles of the characters that, that they play in the town. But anyway, we've been cross-cutting to Mayor Williams, played by Janet Lee, and her assistant Sandy, played by Nancy Loomis, who was Annie Brackett. They are doing everything they can to prepare for the town's upcoming centennial party, and when they go to the church, they find Father Malone deeply disturbed by what he has learned in this recently discovered journal. The journal is written by his grandfather and tells the story of Antonio Bay's discovery a hundred years ago. And we learn that Father Malone's grandfather was one of six men who deliberately attacked a ship called the Elizabeth Dane that was populated with lepers who wished to establish a colony nearby. So the plan of these six founders of Antonio Bay was to attack the ship, massacre the lepers, and steal the gold of their leader, William Blake, and use that wealth to establish the town of Antonio Bay. So basically, Father Malone is totally like disheartened to like learn, hey, this upcoming centennial party is celebrating a mass murder of which my grandfather was the ringleader. And we learn that these six conspirators met at midnight before the massacre. So this hour between midnight and 1 a.m. is kind of when everything happened. And that's got significance in the movie, you know, the witching hour. Yeah, that was when the planning happened, not actually the attack, right? I think they met at midnight, and I'm guessing the attack went down between midnight and one. Um, oh, okay, okay. I don't know how long a pre-massacre meeting takes. Is it like <laughs> yeah, a, a quick 15, or you need like an hour? <laughs> yeah, what, what's the refreshment situation? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you were going to bring juice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to wait for that to <laughs> I thought Tom was supposed to bring the juice. Some cookies. Um, how do you oh. feel? Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, sorry. I, I was just going to say the hospital scene uh, was, was kind of cool, but it was kind of random that it just got thwarted by the guy falling down. Yeah, right? Like, oh, no, he's going to stab her. Oh, there he goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He forgot he was dead. Yeah. Uh, but on, on, on this uh, thing, uh, this part of the story, uh, this kind of just echoes what we heard at the beginning and just provides more, like, background on who the people were that were coming on the ship, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we kind of, the ghost story is, hey, there was a ship that was trying to come ashore and it crashed. And like, you know, they say it haunts. But this is like, no, it wasn't just a ship trying to come ashore that crashed. It was a ship that like Antonio Bay's founders knew was coming and purposely killed everyone on board because they didn't want these people with leprosy living nearby. Oh, yeah, yeah, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, pr- pr- pretty twisted story there. I I like that. that that's kind of a cool like reveal, and uh, it's neat that like it's tied to the the church head of of the town. 
Yeah. Uh, what do you, What do you think of it? The church head. It's kind of a. <laughs> it's like a hand pistol for the church. <laughs> exactly. Um, I kind of like that premise. I, I think it's pretty neat. Just, you know, like a town with a dark past and it's haunted by that past. Nothing too wacky, original. I mean, in the premise, that that shell of a premise is not original, but I think it's kind of executed pretty well here, especially like. This is a coastal town. The radio is broadcasting from a lighthouse. They thought they saw a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. It just kind of works. Um, yeah. How do you feel about the, the pacing so far and all the cross-cutting? Uh, it's starting to feel pretty slow. And, like, yeah, the story, uh, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I, w- I was struggling because, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of appreciating, like, how much time it was taking to, like, set up the story and was waiting for the plot to kick in. And I think it... Somewhere around here, I pause it and realize like we're like pretty far into the movie at this point. So uh, to me, I guess I'm starting to get a little bit uh, worried or nervous that like holy shit, not a lot's happening. We've been jumping around like so many different characters, um, not really sure who to be grounded in, and it just seems like you have like three or four people like discovering things from different angles, and none of it's like really coming together yet. And we've had like so few attacks, so a, a little worried about the pacing here. But what about you? I do feel like you could say there's no real main character. I think by the end, it to me, it seems like Adrian Barbeau, like Stevie Wayne is the main character. But I could easily accept an argument that there isn't one. Yeah. I, actually, the first time I watched this movie, pacing was a big complaint of mine. But this time I actually felt like the pacing was okay. I, I think nothing huge is happening, but we're either going from like an ominous event to some more information that like further unfolds the story or a little bit of action. So it's not like there's nothing happening. It's just not like big, nothing big happens. Yeah. Yeah. Not like a, yeah, a huge event or anything. Oh, so this is your second time watching this? Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. I see. I wonder if I was to rewatch it, uh, if like my expectations would be set different and like, cause yeah, I think like there's all this build of time and I've been like kind of waiting for like this big, takeover to happen or like this big attack scene that hasn't happened yet so uh yeah i, I think there's like a, a thing around expectations and not being delivered there for sure but yeah i could see that on second watch being being a lot more interesting yeah i mean i think some of that rewatchable vibe came into play for me for sure yep yep uh also just like catching up on carpenter in general over the past few years has helped set my expectations for what i'm gonna see when i turn on a carpenter film sure yeah Another ominous event occurs when Stevie Wayne's son finds some driftwood washed ashore that says Dane on it. Uh, Elizabeth Dane was, of course, the name of that ship that sunk 100 years ago. Stevie takes the driftwood back to her studio where it suddenly starts leaking water, shorts out her equipment, and her tape player starts playing a ghoulish voice. And the words, Six Must Die, appear on the piece of driftwood for a moment before all returns to normal. (laughs) I'm embarrassed, dude, but... Again, I must have taken a note because I missed that it said six must die on that thing. Me too. I didn't catch that Damn, at all. Damn, you did too. It's <laughs> it's pretty quick. I mean, for something yeah. so significant, it's not on screen for that much time. Got it. Yeah, yeah. It is. For, Boy, yeah, people okay. are going to think we're so dumb for both missing that. <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah, yeah I went back and watched it and was like, oh, sure, shit, sure enough. It says six must die on that thing. Yeah, yeah. Do they Do they repeat that later? They, they come to explain or, like, assume later on that, like, oh, they're going to kill six people uh, to, yeah, right. as revenge on those six uh, founders of the town. 
So sure. that three that he etched into the ground was the three men aboard the secret that, that had already, already died. been killed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, got it. Why the ghouls are like keeping count physically, <laughs> <laughs> writing down the <laughs> quick. I need paper and pen. <laughs> I'm gonna forget. You know, pirates are also pretty uh, good accountants back in the day. <laughs> yeah, they got to keep keep tally of that loot, that booty. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, got to keep tally of that booty. <laughs> Stevie is starting to become more suspicious, suspicious of this fog. In addition to noticing that it moves against the wind, it also seems to be glowing. So she calls the weatherman Dan to warn him that from her lighthouse she can see this ominous fog coming his way and it's not behaving like any fog should. He doesn't take the warning seriously, though, and he pays for it with his life as a ghostly sailor strangles him to death. There was a cool, like, glow during this scene. The score particularly was really cool during this scene. And it's at this point that I'm kind of accepting these kills are not going to blow my mind, but the Mm -hmm. movie has a certain style, and I like that style. But what did you think of this kill? This kill's kind of like the breaking point where it's like, all right, the kills aren't going to get any bigger (laughs) than what we've seen in the past. Yeah, uh, yeah, I I like this one. I I thought it was shot a lot better than the boat attack scene. And yeah, you're right. Maybe that boat attack scene then uh, has like lowered your expectation. And then here's this one kind of reinforcing like this is going to be the style of the kills. And uh, yeah, the lighting, even like the fog out the outside the window looks really cool. The red light on it, how there's like this knock on the door that comes and it's like really ominous. Uh, I I think it's a really cool sequence that plays out. And by now, yeah, you've gotten past that idea of like you're going to see a lot of like cool gore, like awesome monsters. And instead, it's going to be this mysterious like atmospheric kill. So I, I was into it at this point. There's a lot of like blue and red lighting juxtaposed together in Carpenter films, which is very popular to do now. And like Joe Bezos, I feel, tries to capture a Carpenter vibe when in his films, and he goes like real hard with that orange-red contrast. He's yeah, the guy what, that did what? VFW. Oh, oh okay. I can okay, never remember if it, it... I think it's Bezos, and I always call him Bezos. Fuck. Jeff Bezos? I, yeah, I always do some sort of weird confusion with, with Jeff Bezos, but his name is Joe, yeah. and he directed VFW, and okay. that... Uh, that Christmas horror movie from last year that was actually pretty good. I think it was called Christmas, Bloody Christmas. Oh. Oh, man. What was that called? Anything with this guy's movies now, I'm just not remembering. But Damn. Yeah, I know. It's a name we've talked about. Yeah, I think it's uh, Joe Bigos. Okay. Cool. And he does. He borrows like that Carpenter style of red and blue lighting. He does. Like VFW, I think he said, was inspired by Assault on Precinct 13. Or if he didn't say it, a lot of people drew that comparison. So, Okay. But yeah, Carpenter's or Cundy's is much more subtle than what what Bigos does. Sure, and, sure. But I dig it. I dig the I dig the vibe. Yeah, I liked it. Stevie tries to call the sheriff uh, after kind of hearing on the phone that things did not go well on Dan the Weatherman's end end of the line. Uh, but the phone cuts out as the entire town loses power as the fog approaches. Stevie sees the fog approaching her house where her son is home with the babysitter, so she gets on the air and asks someone to please get to her house because her son is in danger. Nick is in his car with Elizabeth and hears the call for help, and they get to the house just in time to save the boy from a ghastly sailor who has entered his house, but not in time to save the babysitter who has already been dragged into the fog. There's a really cool shot here out the car window as Nick Elizabeth and little Andy are trying to escape, but can't get this car unstuck. So we see the silhouettes of the ghostly sailors, like, in front of the glowing fog. And it's 
it's a whole mood. Like that shot alone is just really cool. It is, yeah. I, I, I love that like, you're not like seeing a clear visual of these uh, ghosts and it's like more just like them in the fog and their silhouettes. It's, it's really cool. I feel like this this whole scene is really kind of representative of the movie because the vibe is cool. There's actually really good suspense when she's like calling out this urgent call for help over the radio. Nick and Elizabeth are trying to get there. And it's a cool scene, but at the same time, the babysitter just disappears. She just gets pulled into the fog. So, yeah, prime example of the kills leaving a lot to be desired, but there still being a lot of style. Yep, yeah, a lot of style going on here for sure. So yeah. Stevie gives a tear-filled on-air apology to her son Andy over the air and asks him to please understand that she has to stay here at the station basically to guide the town and report on what, what she's seeing from this, you know, spivey points up high. She's on the lighthouse. She's got the bird's eye view. So she continues to guide the town as to where the fog is approaching and where it's moving. She tells her listeners there's something in the fog, stay away from the fog, and she instructs them that the only place that hasn't yet been engulfed in the fog is the church, and that's where Nick, Elizabeth, and Andy head now. Once they arrive, we've got pretty much all our main characters except for Stevie here at the church. We've got... Father Malone, Mayor Williams, Mayor Williams' assistant Sandy, Nick, Elizabeth, and young Andy all together for the first time in the film. And together they reason out that five people have died so far. The three men on the seagrass, Dan the weatherman, and Andy's babysitter. And Father Malone says he's going to be the sixth. Uh, They also find a line in the journal that says, God's temple is the tomb of gold, which leads Father Malone to realize that Blake's gold must surely be hidden in this very church, he enlists the others to start tearing rocks out of the walls, and he discovers a giant cross made of gold. The fog now begins to envelop both the church and the lighthouse, and we keep up with the film's pattern of cross-cutting, this time between Stevie and the lighthouse and everyone else in the church as things get more urgent. A ghoul breaks down the door in Stevie's recording studio, and she runs upstairs to the roof of the lighthouse where she is eventually surrounded by these ghostly lepers with red glowing eyes. Meanwhile, the ghosts have also entered the church, and Father Malone approaches the ghost of William Blake and tells him he's got his gold, and he holds out the cross. He says, I'm Father Malone, take me. And Blake grabs the gold cross that Malone is holding, and there's a big flash of light, and eventually all the ghosts just disappear, even the ones surrounding Stevie on the top of the lighthouse. The film wraps up with Stevie on the radio saying, I don't know what happened to Antonio Bay tonight, but it could come again. Look across the water in the darkness. Look for the fog. And it seems like everything's ending happily. They, you know, just him touching that cross defeated everybody. Uh, But the final scene shows Father Malone wondering aloud, why not six, Blake? Basically, like, wondering why Blake didn't kill him. But the final shot is Blake appearing behind Father Malone and beheading him. Which is a pretty cool way to end the movie, actually. It is. Yeah. Nice. So I kind of <laughs> nice zoomed through kill. that conclusion, but what did you think of all that? I liked it, man. I, I thought the church scene where the uh, the ghosts show up, again, like with the fog and like this time red eyes, like kind of glowing, a uh, really cool like confrontational scene and like very uh, neat suspense in that church setting. I, I like that a lot. And then I love like the close action you get in the lighthouse, similar to like the house with the, ch- with the kid in it. Uh, where she's like running like from these ghosts who are like uh, yeah knocking at the door and then chasing her up the stairs. So uh, I I thought this uh, last uh, act was like 
pretty action filled and, and fun and like a nice kind of payoff. It's like all the atmosphere that was building off while still kind of maintaining it. Uh, what, what did you think? Agree. I think that we really needed something like this to, to pick things up a little bit. And I really enjoyed the cross cutting didn't bother me throughout the movie, but it is a lot. You know, it's kind of constant. And it felt right here because, you know, we've got two urgent things happening at once with Stevie's attack and the church attack. And that really upped the ante on the suspense and like, okay, they got to figure something out at the church because Stevie's, you know, on the roof. She's got nowhere to go. And yeah, those red eyes looked pretty cool. That was a nice touch. Yeah, that was a really cool touch. Uh, one thing, uh, as, as you were talking through that, like, uh, this sounds like it should be a lot bigger than what it is. Like, this fog is taking over the whole town, and we know in that town, like, this is a huge night of celebration. There should be, like, a bunch of people out. Uh, I, I'm surprised we didn't get, like, a huge massacre that, like, shows, like, the size of, like, this chaos taking over this town and killing much. It, it still, like, feels, I like, the town is a setting, uh, there's so much space here. But the and, and, and we're all like pulled in like so many directions with these different characters, but we're not feeling like the full weight of the this fog and like the the attacks happening on the town. Like any any reason why or why do you think they held back on that? I mean, that might be the fault of the core conceit, which is that the the ghouls only want six people, like any <laughs> no old six, no just <laughs> to make up for the six that they want revenge on. Yeah, who okay. they don't even have to be related to these people, like. Father Malone's a descendant, that makes sense. But it's like, hey, we're back and we're just going to kill six random people and be on our way. Right, yeah. I am i don't think it's necessarily silly, but it does hamstring the movie because, yeah, we start the movie with, oh, spooky stuff's happening all over town. Well, we could see spooky stuff continue to happen all over town. We could see, yeah, this borderline small-scale apocalyptic scenario, at least within the town, of like multiple attacks and... Even just people, you know, hiding in their basements or like grabbing their kids from the yard and right. I yeah, mean, I guess it's pretty him. late at night. So if your kids in the yard at midnight, you, you well, mean, it is the one hundred year anniversary. That's true. Yeah, there should be like firecrackers <laughs> and yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, the town should be celebrating, and we do see a little celebration, but it's a pretty, uh, pretty pathetic celebration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This sounds like a lot going for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, they, I mean, they could have really gone grander in scale, but you know, small budget. I yeah. understand. Sure, sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, it was a nice ending. It, it was a good, good payoff, and well done. I agree. I agree. And one thing we haven't touched on is there is a lot of beautiful nature photography of dramatic cliffs and the lighthouse, to all moonlit and spookily beautiful. The transitions and the town being a character in this movie, like you can really feel that. And it's just a beautiful place. I, th- I want to say it was like Point Reyes, California or something. I didn't write that down. It's a beautiful place, and the shots of it are really beautiful. And that helps. It helps the vibe of this town. Yeah, the cinematography is great. And uh, what would you think of like the fog effect that, like, they show every now and then, like, how it's, like, creeping on the city. I thought it was pretty cool. It could look cheesier for it being a fog that glows in a film from 1980, but I thought it looked pretty good. How about you? Yeah, I agree. Like, it uh, definitely felt like uh, maybe computer-engineered somehow, right? Uh, obviously, like, a, 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 an effect that was thrown in post-production, but, uh, yeah, for the 80s, I, I thought it looks pretty good. Uh, yeah, agreed. 
Um, how, how do you feel about performances? I, I think Barbeau turned in a really great performance. Um, I, everyone else does a pretty fine job, too. I, I don't know that anyone has the opportunity to really steal the show except for Barbeau, but... I feel the same. Like I feel like she was the only true character in this movie. Everyone else is just like very action oriented or like on a task, so you're not getting like too much on them. Uh, which I don't know. It feels kind of lazy. Like you ha- have a movie with, that's like across so many different characters, but only ones like kind of has any kind of like personality or is a little bit built out. The other ones are so uh, just there for like plot development or like to find clues or to to go down this like mouse hunt. Yeah, they kind of just have things happen to them. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, she. I was arguing, yeah, I could see somebody saying there's no main character. It's got to be her. You know, we we know a little bit of her backstory. She's kind of new to town. We hear her talking the most. We know that she has a son. She's the only one with any character arc or like having anything serious happen to her. Uh yeah, it's got to be her. I-, I love her as the voice of the town. I-, I I dig that there is a DJ. Yeah, me too. It, it, it kind of keeps the flow of the film consistent. Yeah. Um. Do you uh? Do you feel like she is like the final girl then of this film? No, I don't think this film really has a final girl. Yeah, maybe because like yeah, you have multiple ghosts attacking multiple people. Yeah, uh, and it's just not. That's just not the structure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, like, naturally I'm trying to compare it to, like, the film he did a year or two before with Halloween so focused on one character being, a, uh, actually a bunch of people get attacked, but, I mean, there's one survivor. Well, yeah, uh, so, such, like, a intimate story versus this, it's, like, so spread out over a whole town. Also, all happening within, like, 24 hours, right? Like, the time frame of this movie is pretty condensed, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I guess it's, yeah, I guess it goes across two nights, but, yeah, about 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, which I, I I like that his movies uh, have like that time pressure on them, like everything's happening like in one day or something. But uh, yeah, weird uh, pivot from Halloween to come to this, where like you're spread out over so many characters versus having that strong main character. Yeah, boy, interesting uh, observation there with the time pressure. I've never seen Dark Star, but Assault on Precinct Thirteen is just like one night. Halloween is one night. So is The Fog, essentially, kind of two. Two nights, that's a little more than 24 hours. Escape from New York has a ticking clock. Okay. Halloween 2 is one night. The thing... How long does the thing take? It's not a long time. Okay. But it's not... I don't think it's just one night. Yeah. I feel like there's a a period of time. Yeah. Boy, interesting. Uh, Prince of Darkness happens in one night. Okay, yeah. hmm. Yeah, it might be a Carpenter thing. Like, uh, let's just chronicle what's going to happen in 24 hours. Sure. What are your biggest beefs with this movie? Okay, yeah, my biggest beefs. Uh, I I have pacing. I'm, I'm mixed on that, though, because I think it's my first watch going into it. I, I didn't expect it to be so slow, and I was really surprised that like the movie was almost over and so little had happened. So you do have a first and second act, or maybe it's just like one long first act that's just like very much unsetting. There's some sequences, too, where like she walks to the lighthouse one time and is like setting up uh, for the day, and like all you're hearing are... Uh, radio promos like for like I don't know five minutes so like some some scenes like unnecessarily go on for way too long so I, I do think pacing could have been uh, 
tighter, even though at the same time, like there's a balance, like it does give you a lot of room to get into the town, but still like some scenes could have been taught better. Uh, character development and dialogue, I, I think was, yeah, almost non-existent. Um, but I, I think you're right. We have the one strong character, uh, who offered up something, but the other ones were lacking. And then, yeah, the editing on some of the action sequences, like the boat sequence, uh, I had some issue there. Um, but that, that was about it. What, what about you? Yeah, I share some of those. I think my biggest complaint is there's really not a strong story. Like, anytime you have a story and bits of information trickling down to you and letting things unfold in the movie, it makes things seem bigger than they are because you're, you're learning things one, one piece at a time. So it can kind of stretch things out or make things, I don't know, take a simple story and make it not seem so st- simple. But the story is essentially hey, this horrible thing happened in the past and now the ghosts are back to kill six people and take their vengeance. And that's it. Like, there's no other side plot, nothing else going on, which is fine. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a very slim. It's, it's kind of a bare-bones plot. And I think that the kills really could have been more eventful, grisly, dynamic, even if you don't want to go gorier, you could have added a bit more suspense. Like, oh, they're out that window. Oh, phew, they're gone. Like, oh, no, now they're at the door. You know, the the scenes with Andy and with Stevie on the roof are two exemplary examples where it's like, okay, like, I feel like you did that right. But I think they could have done that two more times. You know, they as much as I think the seagrass kill was moody and kind of neat they're really they left some stuff on the table missed opportunities there yeah yeah i mean even like the radio station kill like you don't see much happening it's yeah. just like a fog which i thought was the a decision dip, the weather man kill yeah the weather man kill yeah. yeah which which i thought is like this movie is called the fog not like the ghost of the pirates and so I assume like uh, that that's like why he, you don't really focus on like the action sequences of like these ghosts popping up, but they're just supposed to be like ancillary. And what you're supposed to be focused on and scared of is the fog, which, uh, we, yeah, we, we, I, I thought that was like why we don't see more like suspenseful sequences with the ghosts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but the fog really had nothing to do with it. <laughs> it was, I know. Yeah. It was just basically yeah. their calling card. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know that that that, that part's so really weird because even if you think about what happened a hundred years ago, the fog it just happened to be foggy, right? And like someone lit a fire and it drew them there. Right. But it was a the foggy fog night. is like the yeah, but the fog is the thing that is like being demonized here and is supposed to be like the bad guy here. But yeah, you're, it's it's kind of a weird, really weird. Uh, is that a, is that what a misnomer is? What's a misnomer? A misnomer. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I guess like calling something. A th- an incorrect name or giving an incorrect title, kind of. Do you feel like this movie should have been called The Fog and it should have been less focused on The Fog and more about these ghost pirates? <sighs> no, because The Fog is ominous, you know, and it doesn't reveal yeah. the whole plot because we don't really learn what's going on until the end. They're not pirates yeah. either. Don't. That's a misnomer. <laughs> <laughs> They're yeah, just seafaring so- guys looking for a place to stay. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My bad, confused them. <laughs> the, really, the founders of Antonio Bay would more closely the fit the pirates. definition of pirates. Sure. Massacring sure. a crew to steal their gold. They stole the gold, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's one thing I appreciate about the film, but also hated. 
Because, like, yeah, you wanted to see more monsters, more gore, uh, more cool kills. But then at the same time, I was, like, trying to appreciate, like, okay, you, you want us to be focused on the fog and just, like, that it's coming in, it's ominous, and when it comes, people will die. Uh, and so just focus on that. So I, I don't know how, how much disappointment to have there. Sure. Um, there is something to me that is relaxing and likable about this movie. Does that make sense to you, or do you feel similar? <laughs> it does. You can yeah. just kind of sink into it. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, t- to me, it reminds me of like the last fo- uh, Taylor Swift album, Folklore, I-, I guess a few albums ago. It's just, what's that, like cottagecore sound or whatever, where it's just like really, it, nothing like jumps out to you, nothing's like too quick or fast or pushing you in any direction or challenging you. It's just like very comfortable to like settle into and absorb slowly. Is that is that how you feel? Sure, yeah. It's just like a mood you can sink into. <laughs> yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Fol- comparing yeah. the fog to folklore, I didn't think that would be coming, but... I mean, it's that music genre, like a uh, soft. Uh, was it? What's that soft genre? Soft rock. I don't know. Uh, Cottagecore, I think, is a pretty accurate description. Oh yeah, yeah. But I guess when we were growing up, there was, there was like a station called like Softcore, or like what like middle aged people listen to. There was to. a station, Softcore soft station, but that was Cinemax. Uh, but yeah, I yeah, think soft right. rock was what they called the radio stations like that. Yeah, I assume it's like what middle aged people like us listen would listen to. So I, I assume like this film like kind of fits in that genre. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what a journey! What do you, what Hit do you some think? Taylor uh, Swift, Cinemax, <laughs> exactly. Went all over the place there. Uh, what do you think about some of the, the themes in the film? Boy, what are the themes? I mean, don't murder and steal gold. <laughs> Actually, the, weirdly, the theme is like you can do bad stuff. And no one will have to deal with it for about a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a next generation problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, global. Maybe this is a climate change theme. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, applicability to a lot of like things uh, in our society about like yeah, traumas like fa- face, faced uh, in past generations or like crimes committed in in the past that like uh, w- uh, future generations have to pay for potentially yeah, like global I mean, warming. You or, sorry? slavery or like slavery, racial yeah. violence and for sure the, uh, the treatment of Native, Native Americans yeah. potentially. And stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it's like a pretty cool universal uh, theme that like uh, this ghost story was like kind of cool. I- I'm not sure if it was trying to make a bigger point than what it was. Uh, do-, do you think so? I could see Carpenter doing that. I feel like he was kind of a, a radical dude a little bit. And yeah, I mean, that is really the theme, I think, right? <laughs> like, so much of the town that you know and love was how does that change? Basically, like Father Malone's line where he's just like, my God, we're going to be celebrating a massacre. Like, is that any, like, U.S. holiday that, you know? Um, <laughs> that sounds, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of sobering. I mean, we all are hyper aware of it these days. At least most of us are. Some of us, others, I think, want people to shut the fuck up about it. But, like... That is the truth, and it's just, yeah, coming to terms with, wow, we were founded on, like, the blood of innocent people who were victimized so we could have more. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I I know, like, you and I have talked about, like, a a horror film around, like, Christopher Columbus, right? Right, Uh, yeah. It it, it kind of feels like it it could, like, kind of fall into that territory of, like, uh, yeah, you kind of believe this one story about your land's origin or how the town was founded, but the reality is different, and now you're fucked. Right, yeah. Very yeah. true. Um, the other thing, uh, going back to the quote at the beginning that you talked about, uh, do you think 
it's a comment on like just how atmospheric this film is like be talking about dreams does this movie feel like it's paced to feel like a dream it is kind of a dreamy film but maybe it touches on what we just were talking about like we had this dream that America is this wholesome place founded on like freedom and faith and values and honesty etc and it's really founded on violence and greed and everything we thought it was is just a dream like any misplaced i don't know yeah 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 and i mean no, I, and i i see the counter argument like hey like america does have freedom but you know i'm not trying to get into a whole political thing here but <laughs> <laughs> if we're sticking yeah. with the theme of the movie yeah like maybe what you thought your town was, what you thought your country was, what you thought your past was, is merely a dream. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, what is real? Uh, what's a dream? Uh, yeah, that's a cool interpretation of, of the opening. That makes sense. We got there. Yeah. Yeah, nice work. We didn't notice that there was a number three etched on a floor. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> notice that there was a sign that said a whole six phrase. Yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. figured out what the text maybe, but probably doesn't mean. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, right. I think we're almost there. <laughs> uh, okay, man, zero to five silky smooth radio voices. What do you give Ooh. this movie? You know, watching it, I, I would give it three, but uh, after I like had time to think about it, I think I'd give it three and a half silky smooth radio voices uh, out of five. I think it's a cool classic horror story in a great t- small town setting, uh, and despite some of its shortcomings, like the character development and kind of uneven pacing i do think the third act really brings it back and delivers the payoff uh and combined with the john carpenter's overall aesthetic atmosphere uh i think the movie has a a neat edge and uh, it succeeds what do you think agreed man i give it 3.5 out of 5 silky smooth radio voices as well i think while the plot may be a bit bare bones the lighting score and production design establish a uniquely spooky atmosphere that envelops the viewer not unlike the fog envelops the town of Antonio Bay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I took a page out of your book with that. Yeah. Um, I like this. Yeah, I gave it a three the first time I watched it, but it's. I do think there's a lot of rewatch value here. It's. I could see how it could be a comfort movie for people. I could see how people in the 80s would want to pop this VHS in Yeah. every Watch year or so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it definitely has a rewatch value. Yeah. Um, cool. Anything else? Nah, that's all I got. All right. That has been our discussion on The Fog. Uh, feel free to let us know what you thought. You can find a way to contact us on horrormovieclub.com by clicking the social links drop down. We've got links to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Those are all places where we tell you what we're going to be covering next week as well. There's also a link to Discord, our Discord server, where you can come hang out with a great community of listeners and horror movie watchers there. Uh, let's see. You can also give us a five-star review if you liked the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Our cover art is done by Amy Mae Popart. You can check her out on Etsy.com by searching Amy Mae Popart, all one word. If you want some a coaster set she made for our show, just Google Horror Movie Club coaster set and you'll find that. And until next time, if you've got some neighbors moving in next door who you really don't want to have around... Just murder them and let your descendants deal with the consequences a hundred years later. <laughs> <laughs> Not your problem anymore. Yeah. Sorry, Grant. <laughs> <Next. laughs>